1: Welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today to help us do that is the author of Kitchen Literacy, How We Lost Knowledge of Where Food Comes From and Why We Need to Get It Back. Anne Velicis, welcome.
0: Thanks very much, Melinda.
1: Well, I found your book to be fascinating because it is a journey really historically of how we cook dinner, and I saw history repeating itself in different forms, and I wondered as I was reading this what your thoughts were in writing it. Did you have any aha moments?
0: Oh, I had many aha moments, Melinda but you know that was really my idea the question for me with this book was gosh how the heck did we get into this situation of knowing so little about our food something that we put into our mouths every day i was just kind of became obsessed with that question and in wondering how to get the answer to it i realized that what i needed to do was to go back through time kind of keeping my bead on what a woman who was cooking for her family knew about her food, what she was thinking about her food, and then follow through time all the way. And so that's kind of the approach that I took. And for me, I mean, there were a number of aha moments. Perhaps the first was that the book actually opens back in Maine. In the late 18th century, I was able to study up on the diary of this woman in Maine who wrote a fair amount about her foods. And you know, I found that she knew so much that was specific about her foods, in particular about her meats. You know, she would know about the animals. She'd know where they had grown up, what they had eaten, what their sex was, what their age was. Those were all things that she knew about the meat she was serving. And it might even go into how she prepared it because, you know, if an animal was older, maybe you'd stew it up longer. Then if it was younger, you'd use a different recipe. So, all of that kind of knowledge that was really linked to place and community was part of her thinking about food and, um, and cooking, and I thought that was fascinating. Another one happened farther along in the story, which is when people moved to cities. That was really sort of the impetus for some of the biggest changes in our food system. And I realized that at that juncture, people were very used to knowing their foods with their senses and you know, smelling them, looking at them, that's kind of how they, they evaluated foods. But as the food system began to industrialize and things started coming in boxes and cans and different forms, we really had to come to think about foods in an entirely different way. And that following through time made me realize, gosh, it's not always been the way it is now. There's really been major adjustments, um, through, through American history.
1: Well, you start out by talking about the meal by Martha, and that is Martha Ballard. And what I thought was so fascinating was that you went through her diaries of what she ate yeah. for a couple of decades, if I'm recalling correctly, and yes. that over time, what did she have? Citrus was maybe, you could count on one hand how often she had citrus in her diet. Right. At that time, it
0: was um, kind of the thing that you might have one orange in your uh, in your life for a Christmas gift. That was the way it, it was used right isn't that amazing <laughs> it
1: is amazing that was an aha moment for me it was like i thought wow the things i take for granted that i eat regularly whereas back in 1790 that was not the case i also love the way you described how women knew when something was good to eat you know looking at the fish in the eye looking for clarity seeing how different bones would move and when you pressed on the flesh, if it would spring back. And then I had a fast forward to my experiences in supermarkets today where the meat is packaged. It's in styrofoam. It's got a clear plastic wrap. And I don't, well, I don't buy meat like that but
0: anymore, but I used to. And it has an expiration date, and you don't even worry. You just don't even think that it's something you should be paying attention to.
1: (laughs) Exactly. But when did we lose that knowledge of, oh, yes, I'm supposed to press my finger into the flesh to see if it springs back? When did women stop teaching their daughters how to do that?
0: It really happened over the course of a couple of generations around the turn of the last century. And as I said, it was this move to cities. People moved at that time for many reasons, from rural areas into cities, for purposes of, you know, getting jobs. There seemed to be more opportunities, all those kinds of things. And so they started to have to procure their foods in different ways. And at first, they kind of had the expectation of still using those traditional methods of, of checking their food. Of One of my favorite ones was the person who said that she smelled at the breath of a bird to see if yes. it was fresh. Yes. <laughs> those kinds of things. But then, as I said, once we started getting foods in boxes and cans, and what happened was at the same time we, we started to get the birth of advertising and at the same time that this transformation was happening. And so what you see is that we really came to learn new criteria for knowing our foods through advertising. You know, So if in the past you might have thought it was important to know the person that raised the animal that became your meat, in the new way of thinking about things you know it might be important that your meat is um sanitized or is um you know words like that started to show up and even the word fresh started to be used in new ways because of course meat was no longer fresh in the sense of having just been butchered it had been butchered in chicago and traveled 200 miles and then was wrapped up and given to you so it it was kind of around that time but, but the thing another thing that was interesting to get back to aha moments is that people didn't just embrace the changes. They were actually really kind of resistant to them. And it doesn't surprise me because if you think about it, the way we know things, I mean, if you know something and you've been taught it by your family and it's something that you really believe, it's hard to totally change and shift gears. And that's what society was sort of expecting and demanding. So through time, younger women that were coming up started to look to modern foods and new ideas about foods is better. And that was something that advertising also helped to push along.
1: Mm -hmm. Anyway,
0: so those are some ways that, that it happened.
1: Well, I thought your chapter, Denaturing the Senses, was very interesting because you talk about the debut of canned foods and how this was really quite revolutionary and how we had to, through advertising or through the labels on the cans, we had to teach the buyer what they could expect in that can. And what a challenge, and then all the chemical processes that we went through in order to make it uniform in color and so forth, and these weren't as accepted back a 100 years ago as they are today, and you talk about, you know, we pick up the SpaghettiOs or the, the creamed corn or the alphabet soup, and we don't think twice about how that actually came to be on the shelf,
0: but the history is quite fascinating. Yeah, and if you if you imagine just that you'd never seen a can before and that everything that you'd ever eaten was leafy or fleshy or somehow came from nature, really, came from a garden or a farm, and then all of a sudden your food was coming in one of those silver cylinders sealed up and you didn't even know how to open it, that's the kind of thing that people were confronting. <laughs>
1: right. And <laughs> it, it, it wasn't is. always safe. Yeah. We take that for granted, right, that we're not going to get botulism in the canned foods t- of today, but back... 100 years ago or more, that was not
0: the case. Yeah, and that's actually an interesting little example um, where cans started coming onto the market probably in the 1870s and 80s, but the technology um, to prevent botulism and other problems that could cause health issues really wasn't resolved until about 1920. So there were all these years when, um, you know, people would end up getting spoilage in their cans. They'd find, uh, one of the funny stories I tell is the person who finds the whole rooster head in the can of chicken, that just sounds <laughs> like that was yes. really scary. Or the woman who was, was injured with the molasses. Right, the lab- the uh, the lid popped off and hit her in the eye, those kinds of things. And just also uh, lead, I mean the, the cans were sealed with lead, so lead was leaching into the foods, and so there right. were problems with that. So it's just an interesting example of a technology that gets introduced and is widespread, and it takes quite a long time for the safety of it to really be worked out. Um, and all along, people are kind of the guinea pigs.
1: <laughs> well, I had an aha moment when I was reading about immigrants that came over, and you described the Italians and how this was a group of people who really cherished their work in the garden and producing their own food. And the farmers in Italy were called cantadini, and I thought, Oh, that's Contadina tomato sauce. That's where <laughs> that name came from. <laughs> Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about home economics. Being that I actually have a degree from a college of home economics and and that whole name has even taken on a well, you don't find College of Home Economics anymore. They've all they've had their names changed. They're now human environmental sciences to make them sound much more professional, less Betty Crockerish. But you talk about some of the early home economists, for example, Ellen Richards in
0: 1885. Tell me about her. Well, the really earliest home economists were very interested in helping women to learn science and this idea that if women could be knowledgeable about science, in their own kitchens. It would help them to be more safe and more efficient and and create more nutritious foods. So the idea was to bring a scientific approach into the kitchen. And in part, it had to do with this industrialization, the idea that if foods were being, um, at that point, they were being adultered, which means, you know, for example, they would add some cheap filler into the flour or that was very common. Something like one out of six foods that you'd buy would, would be tampered with. And so her idea was, well, if you know, women could have microscopes and no basic chemistry. They could figure out when their food was being tampered with and make sure it was safe. And similarly, nutrition was just coming to be understood at that time in a very basic manner. But the idea was, if we can help women to understand which foods are the most important from a nutritional standpoint, they won't waste money on foods that don't have value. This probably sounds a lot like what we talk about today was not wanting people to waste their money and calories on junk food but that right. that was the equivalent back then. And so it was sort of a, you know, a noble thing that she tried to do but of course the the early home economists weren't really attuned at all to the fact that there's a lot of reasons people eat. It's not just for nutrition and not just for optimal performance or whatever. People love food because of the flavors and the traditions or favorite thing recipes that get passed on and um and so there was, some, there was some interesting conflicts working through that. But basically, um, at, the, at the outset, the home economists were very skeptical about processed foods and, and anything that was made out of a factory. They kind of felt like, well, women should really know how to cook and we should really guard the kitchen as a, as a realm within the home kind of of integrity and morality. All those kinds of things were, were things people talked about when they talked about cooking at that point. But then slowly over that period of time, that are those couple of decades that straddle the last century, as America became more urban and as advertising gained more strength, as food processing became better in quality, more people started to recognize some of the benefits of these processed foods, home economists really shifted over. They realized or they started to think, well, gosh, maybe these things really are helpful for women. Maybe we need to start thinking about them differently, and in fact, a lot of food companies started hiring home economists at that point, too, and then we kind of got into the situation where the home economists really became very much promoters of processed foods, and I, I think that was, in fact, led to probably the demise of home economics that you talked about later, because at least like when I grew up taking home economics classes, you know, you'd, You'd kind of you'd learn how to cook by mixing together different mixes, you know, like mixing a cake mix with frosting. And see, it was became really dumbed down and irrelevant, you know. Yes. Um, but anyway, so home economics was really important though in this transformation because back whenever that that was a hundred years ago. Many, many women went through home economics courses. I mean, it was a very homogenizing force in how America thought about food at that time and a very powerful force.
1: Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Anne Velisis. She is the author of Kitchen Literacy, How We Lost Knowledge of Where Food Comes From and Why We Need to Get It Back. Anne, one of my aha moments in reading this book was the repeating thoughts and I know you have a degree in history, and so this is probably common knowledge to you, but every now and then I'm reminded how history does repeat itself. And so in 1885, Ellen Richards, a leading figure in the nascent home economics movement, says that as compared to our grandmothers, we are in a state of innocence about the common articles of daily use. So here in 1885, we have someone saying, gosh, you know, we've lost our knowledge, and now fast forward to 2011, and we're lamenting the
0: same thing. We're saying, no, our grandparents knew, but now we don't know. Yeah, Isn't that amazing? Yes. And a similar thing that I, I found fascinating, too, um, I wrote a little bit about at that time in response to that same anxiety that Ellen Richards talked about, people said, Well, what's going to happen to our children? Children are growing up and they don't know anything about where their food comes (sighs) from. This is awful, you know. Poor kids living in cities, and if you can imagine that at that time, it was transportation wasn't so easy. You couldn't just take a ride to the country. And in fact, a lot of kids even worked um, in factories and things like that. So anyway, these poor kids were just never going to even know where their food came from. So they started all these school garden programs all over the country, and. To me, that was a real aha, real. Cause that's something that's been happening a lot yes. more now, which I'm really excited about. and think is wonderful. But that idea that you know people were worried and concerned about that a hundred years ago too. Yeah, um, it's pretty amazing.
1: So the nature study curricula is what you're talking about. How we started seeing the resurgence of school gardens and such. Yeah. What happened? So we had these great nature study courses in place, we had the gardens. What happened between then and
0: now? How did we lose them? Well, as I, was, I, as I kind of referred to a little bit earlier, I think what happened was our culture kind of became infatuated to some degree with this idea of the modern. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, for a number of reasons, we started to become anxious about germs for once. Um, You know, as that food system expanded and became quite large and haphazard, there were lots of problems with foodborne illness back, you know, like 80 years ago. And so one of the ways we solved that was by pasteurizing milk, sterilizing foods. That was one of the advantages that processed foods had. And we just started thinking about those kinds of qualities as being better in our foods. And of course, convenience is a very similar thing. When convenience foods first came onto the scene, women felt really uncomfortable and maybe embarrassed, or they just wouldn't even think about using them because cooking was something that you did to show your love for your family. But through time, we kind of got convinced that convenience actually was a better thing because then women could work another could work a second job and then you could have more income and now, of course, everybody can barely make ends meet with two incomes, right? but at that point, you know, we kind of got seduced into this idea that convenience was wonderful too and that that would give us more leisure time, and in fact, the amount of time that people spend cooking did decline. I mean, it's gone down to, you know, from what used to be something, you know, several hours a day down to less than a half an hour, but though we kind of got smitten with those ideas and we're paying attention to those things, and we didn't pay attention... The other things were hap- that were happening, such as the fact that our food maybe didn't taste as good as it had before. That we had a different relationship with it, or a different sense of satisfaction or lack of satisfaction with it. The, one of the parts that really interested me in this story is the way that our food system starts being a real source of trouble in the environment. You know, it starts yeah. polluting the environment and creating all these hidden costs and problems that we don't pay attention to but that nevertheless create problems in communities where people live so we started paying attention to things that to some things and not others and that's i think part of what got us into trouble and of course you know as as time goes on that we we think that we're solving problems by doing one thing and then we realized that there are other problems around the way like with with agriculture for example we thought we were solving problems by developing an agriculture that's completely dependent on petroleum you know we thought oh that's going to be more efficient we're going to have more food we're going to feed more people it's going to be great but then we weren't thinking at that point about oh well what's going to happen with you know secu- our national security what's going to happen with the climate we weren't thinking about you know all those questions so it's interesting we try to solve problems but then we find out that we've created new problems and we have to solve them again. (laughs) Right, over and over. One of of those historical awarenesses, I guess, that you realize too when you follow things through time. Well, you mentioned here home efficiency expert Martha
1: Breuer ridiculed such gardening as time-consuming and old-fashioned with readily available canned vegetables, she insisted. Women could be spending their time on more important matters. And then all of a sudden we decide, gosh, but gardening is just so much fun and relaxing. And and then we get these really great-tasting foods. So maybe with this resurgence of we're repeating history now again,
0: maybe we'll stay
1: there for a while.
0: Well, I hope so. And I mean, I think that's one of the things that's so exciting and wonderful about this new resurgence of interest in our foods is because it's almost like we're reconnecting with something that we didn't realize that we had missed, you know? I mean, this idea that once we go out and, and grow things in our gardens and, you know, we pick our own carrots and they're so sweet, they're sweeter than any carrot you've ever bought in a store. And there's something so fun and delightful and wonderful and nourishing about it. If we focus and pay attention on that re- to that reward, it just opens up all these new possibilities to us. So I think it's really exciting. Me too. Something else, when I was
1: reading your book, Another Aha Moment, I thought that the focus on fair trade and farm labor issues were a relatively recent happening in, in our historical course. And yet here I discovered, aha, back in 1804, where people were rallying against buying slave-produced sugar in New England. So even back in the early 1800s, there was this awareness that, wait a second, I don't know if I want to be eating this food if it came from the hands of slaves. And here we are reliving that today with the Immokalee tomato producers. And, of course, we still have slave-like conditions with with yeah, some sugar sure. but i was surprised to learn that there was an awareness
0: even back in the early 1800s yeah it was limited but it was definitely there and it's uh, it's it is interesting to find those awarenesses and it gives me hope that that there are more people who are aware now you know i mean it, in some ways it's tremendous to understand that that was happening then but i just think that where we're at now there's so many more people that that know about these things because we can share information in in such different ways now. And um, so I think that that's a hopeful thing, you know.
1: Well, I like the fact that you've given eating and the simple act of preparing dinner historical context. It's not very common that we go so far back and see the similarities with our ancestors, see the mistakes that they've made see them repeating, and maybe, hopefully, we can learn from our history.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons I really wanted to write this book is because, I I mean, I guess it's because I'm a historian. I always, that's the question I want to know is, well, how did we get into this situation? And then if we understand how we got into that situation, maybe that can help us understand where we need to go, um, where we need to move on to. And so these ideas that we have, that we've talked about, people focusing on what's rewarding gardening and cooking what good foods, that can actually also turn into healthier eating and it can turn into a healthier environment as well. So I think it's really interesting to, to reflect. I also think history is it's just fun because it's stories, you know, and it just helps you think about things in a different way.
1: Well, one of the things you mentioned and I shared before we got on, on the air was that I really enjoy finding shopping lists and so do you. And you have a little collection of them, don't
0: you? I did. Well, when all the time I was working on this book, it just seemed like I kept finding people's shopping lists. And so I realized that they were like a little code or a little um, historical document about what somebody was putting together, what they wanted to cook, what they wanted to eat. And the aha moment for me with that was I just realized those shopping lists mean that we all just presume that we can just run down to the store in five minutes and get everything we need from, you know, be it limes or ice cream or any of those things. And that was such a contrast to what I was finding in my research, which was, you know, going back to the beginning of the book especially, where Martha Ballard, the person I wrote right about at the beginning, if she wanted to make a pumpkin pie, well she'd have to figure out that she better plant that pumpkin seed in the spring the year before right um, and i just realized it was this whole different way of thinking about food and being in the world and um and that that transformation of you know how we were in the world then and now was just a really fascinating question to, for me to pursue well i've picked out sections of the book that
1: i thought were especially important to ask about but i want to make sure that I give you an opportunity to share with our listeners anything that jumped out to you when you were doing this research that you would like to share with them? Well, I think just this
0: idea, I mean, we've talked about a number of fun things. I think just perhaps the idea that when I think about history, I think about piecing together the story of, of, of how we got to where we are today. And in some ways, when you, when you look back, it's almost like doing some sort of a, you know, psychoanalysis. you You're sort of paying attention and you're looking at, well, what were we doing then? What were we doing? What were we and why? And um, I think that that's just a a really, to me, it's been a really fun approach. And as I said, it helps us to think about things in different ways. So I think that's just one of the things I would share, I guess.
1: When you travel around the country with this book, speaking to different groups, you must get different questions. Have, Have there been questions that have maybe surprised you or stories that people have told you that have
0: surprised you? Yeah, well, one of the things, I mean, I found so many fun things by by going and talk, talking to other people. First of all, the thing that I find is most people find that they can locate their own family story and history in the story that I tell. And that's really fun because, you know, some people, they had a grandmother that grew up on a farm or they grew up on a farm themselves or they had a relative who worked in a factory that made a particular kind of food. And so it just made me realize so many people's lives used to be more wrapped up in the food system and that that all of us kind of have um, all of our personal histories fit into this genealogy. Even our personal histories of how we learned to cook fit into this story. So that's really fun um, to realize that um, this is something that unites us all. And along those lines, too, um, a lot of times I've given talks in rural areas in I found it really fun because you know of course we live in a time of tremendous political divisiveness and it can be really uh difficult or unpleasant at times and and I find no matter where I went it didn't matter you know what people's politics were they were really interested in a lot of the basic issues in this book the ideas of eating food that's healthy and fresh the idea of supporting local farms local economies kind of getting back to some common sense thinking about food. And um, that was really heartening to me, this idea of realizing that reforming our food systems really has this tremendous unifying capacity, perhaps. I mean, I've seen it in a number of communities. I I love that. I
1: love that idea. Well, I love your book. And I want to thank you for being my guest today.
0: Well, thank you so much, Melinda. It's been a pleasure.
1: Well, we've been speaking with Anne Velisis. She is a historian and author of Kitchen Literacy, How We Lost Knowledge of Where Food Comes From and Why We Need to Get It Back. And you can learn more at the website, kitchenliteracy.com I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri Thank you again, Anne
0: Thank you, Melinda